like to welcome all of you to our program. I'm Gary Knoll. Today we're not going to be doing our health and nutrition because I'm devoting the entire program as well as tonight's Progressive Commentary Hour. My guest tonight will be Chris Hedges. Chris was the New York Times Bureau Chief in Israel and he lived in Gaza, visited, and he has a perspective. Why am I doing this special? Because after watching the mainstream media, including some alternative media, including people who I never thought would be such extreme propagandists for one narrative, for example, Telsey Gabbard, I lost a lot of respect for Telsey. I've respected her opinion on a lot of topics, her courage to take on issues, but boy, did she fold like a house of cards when it came to only providing what is one side of a very biased opinion. Now, obviously, everyone should be concerned about any life that is lost, civilian life. Whether it's a civilian who is Jewish or a civilian who is Palestinian, it is still a sacred life. My goal is that at some point we will have people in positions of power who realize that this conflict is completely unnecessary that there should be an ability to have a two-state solution, which was originally mandated, though it's been broken and violated. You shouldn't have one group who has the freedom of democratic choice and another group that has no choice at all. They live as total prisoners, and yet they've not been convicted of crimes. Are you saying that a five-year-old Palestinian child is a criminal? Then why are you keeping him in this modern-day gulag. I'm not the only one who feels that the Jewish and Arab people should be able to live in harmony and peace together because there have been times throughout history where they have. But unfortunately, there are those in power who believe that they need to maintain control. They'll give you the excuses for safety reasons. And there's more than counter-arguments to challenge that. So what I'm going to do today is play you some of the voices that the media would never dare allow. So you can see that the, the talking points, the masterful, brilliant propaganda of the Israeli government and its ideologues and the pro-Zionist nationalist voices that control Israel and many of those voices in the United States and virtually all of the stilled voices in our Congress, including Bernie Sanders, who at one time actually had the courage to speak out on these issues, we need, we need to look for resolutions. We should not be justifying retribution. We should not accept that the only answer is to see that every Hamas is killed and bring them to justice, yes. But is Hamas the only problem? They say yes. And every Palestinian is also a problem because they all support Hamas. Not true. If I ask uh, someone who's a major proponent of Israel, Netanyahu, Sean Hannity, Sean, could you explain to our, your audience what happened in 1947 and 48? Words that are actually not even spoken today where 700,000 people who are Palestinian 
because originally it was called Palestine, were removed, many of them by force, to Gaza, others killed, massacres. Are you aware of that history? Are you aware of Moshe Dayan, who was arguably one of the greatest military minds in, in modern 20, 20th century warfare, who would later become prime minister? But it was not only he, but it was also uh, Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, who understood that they would face challenges because they had taken this land. They acknowledged that. I actually have the quotes. I went back and read. It's not a, you know, but they felt like Manifest Destiny. This was theirs based upon their belief in their religion, but it was also motivated by a lot of Zionism. The average American has no idea about Zionism. So we'll share some insights on that. So have you ever gone to Israel? Of course. How many times? Many times. Have you ever, Sean, or Laura Ingram, or Lindsey Graham? How about Mark Rubio? Have you gone there and gone to Gaza and said, I'm not going to go by procl proclamation. I'm going to go by desire to see what it's like to be just a, a regular Palestinian living there. Someone who is not affiliated with the political or ideological beliefs of Hamas or any other terrorist organization. No, you haven't. So how then can you completely avoid the fact that for almost 70 years there has been this boutique system of justice and freedom? Do they have a democratic right to vote? No. Can they go where they want? No. Can they bring, can they be industrialized and have a thriving economy which would bring up everyone's capacity for standard of living and therefore negate a lot of why a lot of people support crime? No. In any way, do you see any irony between what the Jews went through in the Warsaw Ghetto and the small group of them that chose to fight back in the Palestinian situation? The Jews were in that ghetto for a relatively short period of time, a few years. Some of the people have been living three straight generations, three consecutive generations without leaving Gaza because Gaza doesn't have an open border. Isn't that ironic? A wall around Gaza and a border that is absolute and deadly and no wall at the southern border. Well, but the people who don't want to wall at the southern border fully support Gaza's wall. The irony not that anyone's going to think about it, certainly none of the corporate Democrats who control this. So what are we seeing? We're seeing censorship by the very group of people who at one time were actual liberals, Kennedy liberals, not Clinton liberals, because a Clinton liberal is not a liberal. So should we be concerned? Yes. But by what we're not being told, the context and content and the honesty of understanding the genesis of a problem. So I'm going to bring that to you now. We're going to go to a series of clips. These are clips that I'm bringing you to show there are voices speaking out, but you will never hear who will be attacked. See if what they're saying makes sense to you or not. If it doesn't make sense, that's fine. Then dismiss it. We're starting with a clip on how the media outlets work with Israel and the American media to control the Gaza narrative.
Israelis were killed while Palestinians nearly died. That's the leading headline on the BBC after Israel pummeled Gaza, the world's largest open-air prison, with Western-supplied bombs after Hamas's surprise attack and rockets that hit Israel. Some media outlets are even leading with images of injured Palestinian children while reporting on unverified crimes committed by Hamas. As if given the same script, corporate media anchors and journalists are repeating the same line that Israel has a right to defend itself as it bombs Gaza's 2 million Palestinian population, whom 50% are children, targeting civilians, violating international law. Meanwhile, the same anchors and journalists demand Palestinians denounce violence and Hamas and run with unverified stories handed to them by the Israeli government. This week's coverage by Western corporate media underlined its inability to hold the world's fourth largest military to account for war crimes, and instead, it's given airtime to Israeli military officials to incite genocide against Palestinians who are caged like animals in the world's largest concentration camp. Western corporate journalists cannot report neutrality on Israel and Palestine, and here's just a few examples as to why. Let's take the New York Times. Not only has the newspaper constantly supported Israel's expansionist policies, it itself has directly participated in the dispossession of Palestinians from their homes. The New York Times Jerusalem Bureau is built on a Palestinian house, which belongs to a noted Palestinian writer, Rada Karami, a survivor of the Nakba. The Times has also often cooperated with Israeli officials directly. In 2014, for example, it received and obeyed an Israeli gag order to suppress the news that Israel had arrested a Palestinian journalist. And from 2008 to 2012, the New York Times Israel bureau chief Ethan Bronner was exposed to having his 20-year-old son enlist in the Israeli army while he was actively covering the region for the newspaper. The so-called newspaper of record never made this public to its readers, raising serious questions of bias and a conflict of interest. The New York Times also fired Gaza photojournalist Hussam Salem following the intervention from the Israel lobby group Honest Reporting. However, the paper had no problem employing Ethan Bronner and others like Isabel Kirshner and David Brooks to write about Palestine while all three had offspring fighting in the Israeli military. In general, the consolidation of corporate media since the 1980s has led to ownership by billionaire oligarchs or gigantic multinational corporations that have a strong stake in preserving the status quo of ensuring forever wars continue and neither of whom want to see nationalist liberal struggles succeed. The orders came down from up high that news organizations have to support Israel, and it's no secret. Axel Springer, a giant German broadcaster that owns Politico, has explicitly told its staff that it is their duty to support Israel, and those that don't should leave. A wave of firings of Arab journalists across Germany underlined this message. The BBC, meanwhile, is the state broadcaster for the United Kingdom, a nation that helped create the state of Israel in 1948. Many of its top foreign affairs journalists go on to work for NATO, or big think tanks funded by weapons manufacturers and the state of Israel, who directly profit from war. The BBC has been continuously criticized for not providing historical context to the crisis in Gaza and linking itself to its own British colonial history of helping create the state of Israel through the Balfour Declaration and providing it with weapons to occupy Palestinian land ever since. American journalists that don't toe the line on Israel and Palestine are often made examples of. 
Take, for example, CNN when they fired anchor Mark Lamont Hill for calling for a free Palestine, or Katie Halper, who was fired from the Hill, for accurately calling Israel an apartheid state. And The Guardian sacked Nathan J. Robinson after he made a joke mocking U.S. military aid to Israel. Other journalists in the industry see these examples, and the message is clear. Stick to the script on Israel or lose your job. In 2013, an investigation revealed that BuzzFeed was paid huge sums to become a public relations arm for the Israeli military disguised as news to ensure millennials were sympathetic to the occupation to portray the IDF as sexy and hip. In 2016, an investigation that I personally conducted into Vice News showcased how the hipster rag publishes soft propaganda to an anti-mainstream audience while pushing a pro-US and pro-Israel government narrative. Vice does this by regurgitating releases from the Board of Broadcasting Governors, an arm of the US government that disseminates propaganda abroad through outlets like Voice of America to push for regime change and forever wars that fuel the military-industrial complex. However, after a lift of its ban to be used in the United States, its reach now is the average young American mind through outlets like Vice News. Of course, these are just a handful of examples of how the media, which is supposed to act as a watchdog to those in power and in the military, is acting as a lapdog for the moneyed interests and military agendas of the ruling military class. This doesn't even scratch the surface of the many conflicts of interest within our media that most people aren't even aware of, including how pundits and other journalists that appear within mainstream corporate media outlets and newspapers as experts who are actually either simultaneously working with or are trained by think tanks, public relation outlets, and Israel lobby groups like APAC that take huge sums directly from the Israeli government and weapon manufacturers like Raytheon and General Dynamics to ensure a pro-Israel, pro-war narrative is dominant. This is why the context of Israel's history as an occupier, as an apartheid state that has engaged in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians for the last 70 years is almost always left out. Instead, the public is fed with simplified versions of the conflict, presenting it as complicated, thousands of years of fighting between religions, Muslims versus Jews, a religious war. The state of the free press in the Western world is far from free. In fact, the media act as stenographers for the military ruling class to ensure profits for weapon manufacturers continue. Which is exactly why in order for us to break through the fog of war and this soft propaganda, we must turn to independent media outlets like Mint Press and others who have preserved their principle of holding the permanent war state and elite accountable. Because that's the role of journalism as defined by our First Amendment. second one. This is one that I'm playing because no one in Congress would dare say what this man is saying. But here is a suggestion. Find what he is saying that is incorrect. That is factually incorrect. Historically incorrect. This is a person who is a Irish member of parliament speaking to the Israeli ambassador in a session of the parliament. Uh, ambassador, I, I will say frankly, I'm one of the people who thinks you should be expelled from this country, and uh, I believe that uh, that's nothing to do with you personally. Uh, it's to do with the policies of your state. 
and uh, I think uh, along with Desmond Tutu that the time for treating you as a normal state is over because you're not behaving as a normal state. And um, I just want to ask you questions really in relation to that uh, contention and I would just say for the record uh, uh, it certainly isn't motivated by anti-Semitism in my case. I mean, for, for, for example, when uh, disgraceful attempts were being made to downplay the horrors of the Holocaust by people like David Irving, I brought a Jewish Auschwitz survivor to this city to organise meetings and get her on national television to remind the Irish people about the horrors of the Holocaust. And I would do so again if anybody tried to downplay the horrors of what were done to the Jewish people. But it is precisely because I'm opposed to racism that I oppose what your state is doing and what it stands for. So I just want to ask you a few questions uh, in relation to that. And I should also say, by the way, I lived for a year on Moshav Neot Hakikar in the Dead Sea uh, in 1987, two weeks before the first Intifada broke out. That leads me to my first question. You have tried to cover over what uh, you have done, the killings of innocent people in Gaza on three separate occasions over recent years, the seizure of Palestinian land and so on, by attacking Hamas. Now why don't you just uh, admit that Hamas didn't exist when the first Intifada took place. They didn't set up an armed wing until the early 1990s. Uh, and that there was a reason that PLO were in Tunis at the time, exiled, effectively uh, not present. But the ordinary Palestinians rose up because you denied them basic rights. I lived there. It was apartheid. It was racism. It was endemic. It was rotten. Absolutely, I was shocked within weeks of living there to see how you treated Palestinian people. And isn't it the fact that the law of return, which is the basic law of the Israeli state, is a racist apartheid law because it confers rights on Jews that it denies to Palestinians. Uh, it allows, for example, if I was Jewish and had never stepped foot in Israel, I could claim citizenship there tomorrow, but six million people whose origins are in what you now call Israel, who were forced out in 1947 or 48, do not have that right. Isn't that part of the reason why the Palestinians are in dispute with Israelis? Because you deny them the right to return to their homes and to their land and to their villages and that they have a legitimate uh, claim, even under international law, to return, but you deny them that right. Why do you deny them that right? And why do you give that right to other people who have no connection whatsoever with the land, whether you call it Israel or whether you call it Palestine? Uh, why do you continue to seize land, if you're serious about Oslo and the two-state solution, why do you continue to seize land which, under that agreement, is land designated to be Palestinian land. 500,000 people, most of which has taken place since Oslo. You allow that to happen. Why do you allow it to happen if you're serious about giving this land to the Palestinians? Uh, it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and it just, you, you must, are you not just taking us, uh, Ambassador, for idiots that you can say with a straight face we're serious about peace, but while we're serious about peace, we're going to seize Palestinian land. And you expect the Palestinians to just sit back and do nothing about that. And the world to accept that that is, uh, an, acceptable, uh, is an acceptable way to behave. And you asked earlier on, what, could we have some constructive solutions? Um, now you know what the Palestinian 
people have been asking for. Far less even than uh, some people would ask for. Because I believe the whole apartheid system should be dismantled. But what they've asked for is to lift the siege of Gaza. Just to lift the siege of Gaza. Let them have an airport. Let them have uh, ports. Let them not be dictated to by a government for whom they do not vote as to what can go in and out of their territories, whether they will have power, whether they will have clean water, whether they will have medicine. What makes you think you're allowed to have nuclear weapons and the fourth biggest army in the world and visit destruction on the people of Gaza, but they have no right to defend themselves? They have no territorial sovereignty over that, that land. Would you ask questions? Please? How do you justify that? Yeah. All right. How do you justify those uh, double standards? And very lastly, uh, very lastly, Ambassador, uh, people like uh, Bishop Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and I would certainly subscribe, uh, describe your state as an uh, apartheid state, with different laws for people depending on their race or religion. Uh, now, isn't that just the case? That for example, at checkpoints, going into the West Bank, there's a channel if you're Israeli or European, and there's a channel if you're Arab. Just because you're Arab. If you came into Dal Aaron and they stopped you and said, are you Jewish? Oh no, sir, you can't come in through the same entrance uh, as Irish people or European people because you're Jewish. You would call that racism and apartheid. But yet, you practice that. You practice that with your checkpoints and your military okay. uh, barriers and your apartheid wall. How can you justify that? That was Richard Boyd Barrett, Irish MP. Here's what he had to say recently about the current situation. He's still a member of parliament in, in Ireland about Gaza, the situation in Gaza. and openly declared their intention to commit a war crime and have commenced that war crime against the people of Gaza, saying that they intend to starve of food, electricity, water, 2.2 million people. That is a war crime under the Fourth Geneva Convention. And you try to suggest there is some symmetry, some equivalence, between the actions of Hamas and what Israel has been doing to the Palestinians for decades. Will you admit that the terrible loss of life and escalation of violence that we have seen in the last few days is simply a continuation of the crimes against humanity, the war crimes of the state of Israel, the Israeli government? Again. You can agree or disagree with what he's saying, but what is he saying that is inaccurate? Has there not been constant conflict? Have there been millions of people kept with no rights, no freedoms, and also suffering? What a person put in their same position would agree would be intolerable conditions. That is not in any way to condone what has been done by Hamas, or at any other time where there's been violence. But the media refuses to acknowledge what, what part any of this has been the responsibility of the 
of the prime ministers. But there's censorship, massive censorship, including Glenn Greenwald right now is going to talk about it, especially the hypocrites exploiting Israel's conflict to justify censorship. A peace in the Middle East meeting was prohibited from taking place in Germany last week after Berlin police banned the event from happening on its planned date, Friday, October 13th, and said the holding of any replacement event in Berlin is prohibited until October 19th. The police said an examination by the assembly authority has shown that there is an imminent danger. The assembly will have seditious, anti-Semitic uh, explanations, a glorification of violence, conveying a willingness to use violence and thereby intimidation and violent activities. Journalist Glenn Greenwald responded to this news, writing, exactly as happened with COVID and then with the war in Ukraine, the multi-pronged censorship scheme the Western governments have implemented has been once again activated, again to a shockingly new level, to ban dissent from EU policy on the Israel-Gaza war. Glenn added, the censorship justification is always the same. The banned views or protests are hate speech. The banned views incite hatred against a vulnerable minority. Allowing these views mean people die. Many who mock these are now cheering the EU and big tech censorship. Now, this, of course, comes after France banned all pro-Palestinian protests in the country. And journalist Glenn Greenwald joins us now to weigh in. Glenn, we are so happy to have you back with us. Um, thank you for being here and, you know, talk to us about these threats we're seeing to free speech and civil protest all over the globe, but in, in Western countries uh, that, uh, that reminds me and probably reminds you of, of how readily and easily civil liberties were abandoned in the U.S. as a response to what happened on 9-11. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right framework. Obviously, after 9-11, most Americans, I know I was included among them, I lived in Manhattan at the time, felt a sense of great rage over the attacks that had been perpetrated that killed 3,000 American civilians. Most decent people, by definition, felt similarly about the attacks that Hamas carried out in Israel on Saturday. And yet the lesson that I thought we had learned from 9-11 is that when we follow our rage and we allow the government to claim authoritarian powers, enact the Patriot Act days later because everybody's so angry and they can exploit that, we end up going down paths that we find at best counterproductive and in many ways shameful. I think the key here, Ravi, is that the EU, these EU governments, Germany, France, have taken a position in this war. They are on the side of Israel. They have made that abundantly clear. And note that they're not banning all protests regarding this war. They're only banning protests that are either critical of Israel or pro-Palestinian, meaning protests that are a deviation from their policies. You're still free to have pro-Israel protests. You're allowed to call for the destruction of Gaza. What you're not allowed to do are have the kind of protests where you express views that dissent from government policy. And that's what I think makes it so alarming. Glenn, you've also been tracking some, I loathe to talk about hypocrisy, but some backtracking that some prominent critics of these kind of speech overreaches uh, have been doing in the wake of this particular conflict. People like you, I will say my co-host here and uh, Michael Schellenberger have been very consistent on these issues, but not everyone has been the same way. Who, in your view, have been sort of the biggest offenders here? Well, it's just so interesting because over the last four to five years, censorship has become a primary weapon of the neoliberal elites or the American liberal left. The kind of entire Democratic Party has defended 
things like the U.S. security state pressuring big tech to censor on COVID, on Ukraine, on Russiagate, and now in this war. And conservatives have been almost unanimously united against this sort of thing, which is why I found myself in alignment with them on these issues. And I have a lot of experience arguing with left liberals who defend these censorship policies, invoking the rationale that you guys started off the, the segment by detailing the ones that I outlined. And now I find myself seeing conservatives overtly cheering, not just the censorship that they have been so loudly opposing over the last two years, but the theories invoked to justify that censorship. One in particular is Dave Rubin, who basically really built his platform, his entire platform, in opposition to things like cancel culture and censorship. And he went in response to this news that France imposed a nationwide ban on all Palestinian protests and said, oh, maybe there's a chance for the West after all. As though, I guess now, the way to save the West is by empowering neoliberal officials in France to ban political speech that they disagree with. And this is something you're seeing throughout the American right. Not all, by no means all, but a lot of people who typically mock cancel culture, mock the call for free speech, uh, for censorship, now suddenly not just approving of it, but demanding it. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, a more good example, as I thought, was the you know the overreaction to the statements put out by the Harvard students, um, you know, solely blaming Israel for what has happened. I criticized that statement. It's gotten a lot of criticism from people on the right, and I think it was fair to call those students out. Of course, that is you know free speech as well. But then there was there was an entire we're gonna you know bla we're gonna broad blast their names all over everywhere. We're gonna make sure they can never get a job, anything of that sort. Um, and then there's you know there's been a split on the right and whether that's the right approach. Megan Kelly saying we should do that. Uh, Candace Owens and Vivek Ramaswamy saying, okay, well, you know, wait a minute, isn't this the very cancel culture um, uh, we decry? Um, I mean, I, I feel similarly to you that there's just, there's, there's so much hypocrisy on, on the kind of cancel culture ethos of free speech um, environment. And then certainly on the, on the policies of free speech, these, these European governments, um, you know, this is, we cannot allow in, in the U.S. this kind of thing to take hold. Thank our First Amendment. Okay. Censorship. It is everywhere. And think of all the lessons we should have learned from COVID, where the very federal agencies were working every day, not speculation, not conspiracy. They're proven by information that was released and now has been verified under testimony. Sorry for my voice. I was broadcasting a lot uh, overnight and this morning. And in any case, what we have is we have a cognitive disconnect. The very governmental agencies that were supposed to be giving us the truth were telling us disinformation. So to protect themselves, they created disinformation agencies that then further solidified the lies we were being told. The truth then was, was being explained as disinformation. It's purely Kafka. 1984. The same thing is happening now. So it's not do you support Israel? Do you support Palestine? That should not be the issue. The issue is do you support a peaceful resolution where people can live in harmony together and have respect for their own lives without fear that is going to in any way be usurped by ideologies or such radical beliefs that you fear for your life. We've had over 70 years to resolve this, and we're right back where we started because 
there is no real desire on both sides to resolve it. But the people suffering would like to see it end. Here is someone who knows more about this, the suffering, than anyone else, except someone who's died. Nelson Mandela. This is a report uh, hosted at a, a town hall meeting, over a thousand individuals from all walks of life. And uh, let's hear what Nelson Mandela has to say on this. Tonight, the issues and the controversy. A thousand people have gathered at the City College of New York for a town meeting with Nelson Mandela. Mr. Mandela, you're participating in what is a very old and honorable American tradition, the town meeting. And rather than waste any time with my questions, if they don't ask you good ones, I promise I will try to. Those of us who share your struggle for human rights and against apartheid have been somewhat disappointed by the models of human rights that you have held up since being released in jail. You've met over the last six months three times with Yasser Arafat. Are these your models of leaders of human rights? And if so, would you want a Gaddafi or an Arafat or a Castro to be a future president of South Africa? One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. Our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle. Yasser Arafat, Colonel Gaddafi, Fidel Castro, support our struggle to the hilt. They do not support it only in rhetoric. They are placing resources at our disposal for us. That is the position. Mr. Mandela, as I mentioned to you before the program, we also have some distinguished guests sitting behind us, uh, one of whom, uh, Mr. Henry Sigmund, together with two other Jewish leaders, came to Geneva to visit with you precisely because they were so concerned not only by the kind of thing that you just said before the break with regard to Yasser Arafat, with regard to uh, Libya's Colonel Gaddafi, uh, but also because of the support uh, that you seemed at different times to give to the PLO. Uh, I would like to ask Mr. Sigmund to, to stand now for a moment uh, and pose whatever question he would like directly to you. Mr. Sigmund? I think I would be dishonest if I did not express profound disappointment 
with the answer that Mr. Mandela gave to the previous question, because it suggests a certain degree of amorality. The as far as Yasser Arafat is concerned, I explained to Mr. Sidney that we identify with the PLO because just like ourselves, they are fighting for the right of self-determination. Mr. Mandela. We have ripped through the first part of this broadcast extraordinarily quickly. There are still a number of issues that we have to take up with Mr. Mandela, not the least of them being sanctions by the United States against South Africa. Uh, we will continue with that in the Nightline segment of this broadcast. Uh, just a quick break now. We'll be back. And we are back once again at the City College of New York with Nelson Mandela. And Mr. Mandela, we have just heard a number of the things that you said in uh, our hour between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock this evening, some controversial things, not the kinds of things necessarily that a very political man says. If you were very political, you might have been more concerned about not alienating some people in this country who have it within their hands, within their power, either to continue sanctions against South Africa or to raise those sanctions, to lift them. Why were, you, why were you not a little more political? Perhaps we're too accustomed to politicians in this country. I do not understand what you mean. Perhaps uh, if uh, you clarify what you oh, well. are referring to, I may be in a position to comment. What I'm saying <clears throat> is that in this country, for example, there has been for many years a close alliance between the Jewish population and the black population in the civil rights struggle there is likely to be a rather negative reaction to some of the things that you have said. That reaction could very well cause people to call up their congressmen, their senators, and say, ah, go ahead, lift the sanctions. Why not? After all, President de Klerk is doing a great deal against apartheid. Only today, in fact, his number two man, Gerrit Villeneuve, said that the government perceives itself in South Africa as being part of the anti-apartheid struggle. <laughs> as far as the Jewish question to begin with, I have had the discussions at my own initiative with prominent Jewish leaders to straighten out this affair. Amongst the people I saw was Mrs. Helen Sussman, who has been an MP in our country for more than 30 years. There was Mr. Mazens, who has been a judge in Lesotho, Botswana, and the old Rhodesia. There was the chief rabbi of Johannesburg. There was Professor Katz from the University of Witwatersrand, and an eminent a uh, community leader in, in South Africa. We discussed this question and all misunderstanding was clear. The question of Yasser Arafat and the PLO. I have also discussed the question 
with uh, the Jewish leaders in the USA and very top people like Mr. Sigmund, we reached an agreement on this question and we saw eye to eye. Now, I don't know where your concern arises. The Jewish leaders themselves are able to determine their own affairs. Nobody else is entitled to say that uh, the Jewish leaders are going to be concerned about your stand. Let because me, I just sure. because I have had the discussions with them, and those discussions will reach consensus. But uh, there are matters, of course, in which we did not agree. <clears throat> but uh, the position which we take as the ANC, I thought we were able to explain it in such a way that it removed the concern of the Jewish community. Let's broaden it up. I am still prepared to do that even in this talk. If the Jewish leader have any doubts about our stand, I am prepared to address them and to allay uh, their concern because they are a very important community both in South Africa and of course in the States. And I'm prepared to iron out any differences that might exist but they must know what our stand is. Arafat is a comrade in arms, and we treat him as such. We have many Jews, uh, members of the Jewish community in our struggle, and they have occupied very top positions. But that does not mean to say that uh, the enemies of Israel are our enemies. We refuse to take that position. You can call it being political or uh, a moral question, but uh, for anybody who changes his principles depending on whom he is dealing, that is not a man who can lead a nation. Okay. That was Nelson Mandela. I'd like your input. I'd like to hear what you are learning from the mass media, from the special interest groups, versus looking on your own for the truth. Because what is the, what is the purpose of all this? To find peace, to find, find nonviolent ways of cooperating, communicating, forgiving, and living together. It can be done. We did it with Japan after World War II. Germany, the same. Italy, the same. And isn't it time that this is brought before more enlightened and less partisan minds to help in this resolution? 888 874-4888 I'd like to hear from you. We're going to take a break, come back. If we hear from you, we'll go to those calls. If not, I have one last clip to play. Please stay with us. Welcome back. We have Wayne from Brooklyn. Hi, Wayne. Your turn. Good afternoon, Gary. And once again, another beautiful, brilliant program that we do daily. My view on this whole thing is that <clears throat> People, a lot of folks discredit or disagree with the protocols of Zion, that it was written by these people. I am seeing the execution of that 
very um, booklet called the Protocol of Zion, where they called for that the, the entire land of Palestine was theirs, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, as far as Iran. And what we're seeing today is, to me, is the execution of that plan, where they're already bombing Lebanon and Syria. And um, it's going to be extended to Iran very soon. I'm seeing that. But your program, the way you do your investigative recording, is something I truly admire. And I'll keep supporting you for these things. Thank you again for being there. Thank you. Your argument that this is based upon the the Protocols of Zion, please understand that that, that was not accurate. Not that you're not uh, believing that, but what is accurate is that there is a conflict that can spread, and we do not need that conflation in the Middle East at this time, because once, once Iran is attacked, if it is attacked, and that's being encouraged by Lindsey Graham and other powerful people, we can't turn that off. And that could lead to enormous negative outcomes affecting millions of people. But I don't want to go into uh, who wrote that and why, and it was a propaganda piece at the time. But there are better there are better sources than that. I would not use that because that's been discredited. However, what we all want at this point, if we're reasonable and responsible, is we want an equitable outcome. We talk about equity. We talk, talk about parity. Good. Well, then just show it in your current efforts in the school system or hiring. Show it with the very people who spent their entire lifetimes living without equity, without rules that allow them to self-govern. I was not a fan of Arafat. And originally I was not a fan of Gaddafi, but I saw what Gaddafi later did for Libya. I saw what Mandela did originally, though that got out of hand with NAC and a lot of corruption there. But remember, he he was a voice, but he was not the only voice. Gaddafi allowed Libya to become the most important, prosperous, and free country of the 54 countries in Africa, the longest life expectancy, the highest level of education, a higher level of literacy than the United States the longest-lived uh, people, the greatest amount of freedoms for their citizens. In fact, there was no unemployment because if you were hired to be an engineer and there were no jobs, you were paid the same salary as an engineer working until you could find work. If you wanted a farm, they would give you a farm for free. They would give you a truck. They would give you seeds. And he created the greatest irrigation, water irrigation pro project in Africa in its history. And for all the good that he did, think of what they did, the United States, the same people in power, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, the Justice Department, the State Department, the Defense Department, they, they found him a threat. And yet not a single negative article written about that and all the people who died, thousands upon thousands, to where it went from the number one country in Africa to one of the least countries in Africa where you can buy slaves in Libya today. That should have meant the end of Barack Obama's career. That should have meant that every single person, including NATO, should have been disbanded because of that, and not a word. So, I can understand why 
they would not want and be angry with Nelson Mandela, aligning with people that they were attacking. Now look at, where would, uh, where would the Palestinian uh, people be if Arafat had not been there to try to defend their interests to find that there is a two-state solution, which was promised to them. Just go back and reread the accords. Clinton signed them, and they were all betrayed. So you see, it's, it's understand who you're opposed and why, and what can be done to rectify it. I do not believe that any of the people in power currently can, should be a part of the solution because it'll just be more of the manipulation we've seen, promises but not kept, and media subservient to those in power. Good for him to say that no one should have a position of power who is so easily influenced by opinion that they're willing to change anything that is important in how they feel about something or believe in something to stay in power. And yet that is the entire body politic in the United States. Every president has acquiesced to this, to stay in power. I thank you for your call. We're going to finish our program today. And by the way, you talk about having an interesting conversation. Please tune in tonight for the Progressive Commentary Hour because it is the most important and listened to and uh, program for progressive minds in the United States. Chris Hedges is probably one of the best people because he lived there. He was the New York Times bureau chief uh, in Israel and the Middle East. And uh, I'm going to be asking him some hard questions. You won't want to miss that. But now let's go out with how do we get to where so few people are willing to think on their own? Where are academic critical thinkers? Where are the philosophers? Where are the ethicists? Where are they? I don't find them on the left. I don't find them on the right. Now, I know they're out there, but why have they not spoken up on this issue? Not to take sides, but to take sides of peace, prosperity, love, forgiveness, conciliation, and cooperation. That is simply what we need. This is a report of how an entire population can become mentally ill, a mass psychosis, and that's what we're seeing. Now, they put it into effect with COVID, where people lined up without asking a question, and even to this day, thank goodness, only 2% of the American population are getting their boosters. Did they test these boosters in human populations? No. Are there known side effects? Yes. Is there a scientific basis for any child getting it? No. Then why are they doing it? And these are the very same institutions that are telling us what the truth should be in the Middle East, or in Ukraine, or in Venezuela, or Yemen. Then the problem is not those in power and their psychopathy. It is those of us who are willing to accept them in their dysfunctional mindset without challenge. Now the clip, we can only play part of it. This after-school presentation was written and narrated by Academy of Ideas. Check out their YouTube channel for more of their videos.
The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, preferring to deify error if error seduce them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. According to the psychologist Carl Jung, the greatest threat to civilization lies not with the forces of nature, nor with any physical disease, but with our inability to deal with the forces of our own psyche. We are our own worst enemies, or as the Latin proverb puts it, man is a wolf to man. In Civilization in Transition, Jung states that this proverb is a sad yet eternal truism, and our wolf-like tendencies come most prominently into play at those times of history when mental illness becomes the norm rather than the exception in a society, a situation which Jung termed a psychic epidemic. Indeed, it is becoming ever more obvious, he writes, that it is not famine, not earthquakes, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself, who is man's greatest danger to man, for the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. In this video we are going to explore the most dangerous of all psychic epidemics, the mass psychosis. A mass psychosis is an epidemic of madness, and it occurs when a large portion of a society loses touch with reality and descends into delusions. Such a phenomenon is not a thing of fiction. Two examples of mass psychoses are the American and European witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, and the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century. During the witch hunts, thousands of individuals, mostly women, were killed, not for any crimes they committed, but because they became the scapegoats of societies gone mad. In some Swiss villages, writes Francis Hill, there were scarcely any women left alive after the frenzy had finally burned itself out. When a mass psychosis occurs, the results are devastating. Jung studied this phenomenon and wrote that the individuals who make up the infected society become morally and spiritually inferior. They sink unconsciously to an inferior intellectual level. They become more unreasonable, irresponsible, emotional, erratic, and unreliable, and worst of all, crimes the individual alone could never stand are freely committed by the group smitten by madness. What makes matters worse is that those suffering from a mass psychosis are unaware of what is occurring. For just as an individual gone mad cannot step out of his mind to observe the errors in his ways, so too there is no Archimedean point from which those living through a mass psychosis can observe their collective madness. But what causes a mass psychosis? To answer this question we must first explore what drives an individual mad. While there are many potential triggers of madness, such as an excessive use of drugs or alcohol, brain injuries and other illnesses, these physical causes will not concern us here. Our concern is with psychological, or what are called psychogenic triggers, as these are the most common culprits of the mass psychosis. The most prevalent psychogenic cause of a psychosis is a flood of negative emotions, such as fear or anxiety, that drives an individual into a state of panic. When in a state of panic, an individual will naturally seek relief, as it is too mentally and physically draining to subsist in this hyper-emotional state. While escaping from the state of panic can be accomplished through adaptive means, such as facing up to and defeating the fear-generating threat, 
another way to escape is to undergo a psychotic break. A psychotic break is not a descent into a state of greater disorder, as many believe, but a reordering of one's experiential world, which blends fact and fiction, or delusions and reality, in a way that helps end the feelings of panic. Silvano Arietti, one of the 20th century's foremost authorities on schizophrenia, explains the psychogenic steps that lead to madness. Firstly, there is the phase of panic, when the patient starts to perceive things in a different way, is frightened on account of it, appears confused, and does not know how to explain the strange things that are happening. The next step is what Arietti calls a phase of psychotic insight, whereby an individual succeeds in putting things together by devising a pathological way of seeing reality which allows him to explain his abnormal experiences. The phenomenon is called insight because the patient finally sees meaning and relations in his experiences. But the insight is psychotic because it is based on delusions, not on adaptive and life-promoting ways of relating to whatever threats precipitated the panic. The delusions, in other words, allow the panic-stricken individual to escape from the flood of negative emotions, but at the cost of losing touch with reality, and for this reason, Arietti says that a psychotic break can be viewed as an abnormal way of dealing with an extreme state of anxiety. If a panic And that's only part of it, all of it is posted. Again, the idea is not to take sides in based upon ideology. Rather, look at everything in an honest context and see what the truth is and then act to support the truth where we want a two-state two solution without borders, without boundaries, so people can live a normal life. That shouldn't be asking too much, but evidently it has in the current context of the political debate. I'm Gary all. Thank you all for listening. Think about what is said. Let us not react in mass psychoses. We are better than that. We're smarter than that. And if we want to be a part of the solution, then let us hear from people and select people in positions of power who will look for the truth and act upon it where everyone benefits. Listen in tonight to Chris Hedges' 7 o'clock appearing.live and have a nice day.